This is Here's How, Ireland's political, social and current affairs podcast, presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading episode 7 of Here's How. On this show, you'll hear about regenerating our city centres and getting people to live there, the introduction of drug-injecting clinics for addicts, the experience of canvassing in the marriage equality referendum, and there's lots more. Here's How is Ireland's political, social and current affairs podcast. Make your view heard. Just dial 076 603 5060 and tell the world what you're thinking. Your voicemail may be included in the next podcast. You can find tips on recording your contribution and other ways to contact the show at hereshow.ie slash call. This week, the last week of May, we have an extraordinary situation. We have a situation where a TD in Dáil Éireann, our National Parliament, made a speech. Speeches in the Dáil, by the way, have absolute privilege under Article 15.2 of Bunroch na Héireann. It says, and I quote, All official reports and publications of the Oireachtas, or of either house thereof, and utterances made in either house, wherever published, shall be privileged. Absolute privilege means that under no circumstances can any court be used to make the speaker liable for what they say. It's the same as a witness giving evidence in court. Now, in law, there are other examples, such as your boss writing a report about your work performance, that has qualified privilege. Qualified privilege means that if your boss makes a mistake and writes something bad about you and incorrect, you can't sue them anyway. You can only sue them if you can prove that they knew it was wrong and they wrote it anyway just to spite you. That's qualified privilege. Absolute privilege is different. Absolute privilege means that no matter whether it's true or not, no matter whether the speaker knows if it's true or not, it's protected. There can be no recourse to court. This protection extends to reporting what happened in the doll. The privilege wouldn't be much good if nobody could hear what was said. So media who report court cases or proceedings in the doll can report the transcript, play the tape, or have somebody read the words, and they have the same constitutional protection as a TD who's speaking in the doll. That's the bit about wherever published. That's what that means from the Constitution. Of course, if some element of the media went on to discuss what was said, and in that discussion they gave facts or opinions that were not contained in the original Dáil speech, they could be in trouble for that if it was defamatory or contrary to an injunction. Despite that, almost every media organisation in Ireland either refused to report what Catherine Murphy said in the Dáil this week, or removed links or reports after getting threats from Dennis O'Brien. And these days, when we say every media organisation, that basically means RTE and the media owned by Dennis O'Brien. It almost seems as if nobody is willing to report what she said. So here goes. We are now aware, for example, that the former CEO of IBRC made verbal agreements with Dennis O'Brien to allow him to extend the terms 
of his already uh, expired loans. We also know uh, that the verbal agreement was never escalated to the Credit Committee for approval. I'm led to believe, and I would welcome the Minister clarifying the, the, the rates applicable at this time, that the extension also attracted uh, some extremely favourable interest terms. I understand that Mr O'Brien was enjoying a rate of around 1.25% when IBRC and arguably should, when IBRC could and arguably should have been charging 7.5%. We are talking about outstanding sums here that are upwards of 500 million. The interest rate applied is not an insignificant issue for the public interest. Uh, we also know that um, Dennis O'Brien felt confident enough in his dealings with IBRC that he could write to uh, Kieran Wallace as the special liquidator and demand that the same favourable terms extended to him by way of a verbal agreement could be continued. That brings us to the substantive issue. If you heard a previous episode of this podcast, you'll have heard Catherine Murphy talk about the deal selling the company SiteServe from IBRC to Dennis O'Brien. SiteServe was an insolvent company. It had debts far greater than its actual value. The debts were owed to IBRC, which is the company winding down Anglo-Irish bank assets on behalf of the taxpayer. One aspect of that scandal is that the people who held the worthless shares in that company were paid €5 million of public money for essentially nothing. And the shareholding was dominated by the directors of SiteServe, insiders who were well-connected both with Dennis O'Brien and Anglo and its former staff, and they were the ones who got the bulk of the £5 million. The second aspect of that scandal is that it's clear that there were other people willing to pay more for SiteServe than Dennis O'Brien did. A French company called Altrad and an Australian company, Anchorage Capital, both offered IBRC the taxpayer, millions more than Dennis O'Brien eventually paid for it, but they were told by SiteServe management that the company just wasn't for sale. Now that was a pretty big favour to O'Brien because it saved him the bother of paying about £20 extra for SiteServe over and above what he had paid if he had matched Altrad's proposed price, although £5 of that went to the shareholders of the worthless SiteServe company. That was a pretty big favour to O'Brien. It saved him about €20 over and above the price he would have had to pay matching Altrad's proposed price, although €5 of that went to the holders of the worthless SiteServe shares. But everyone around O'Brien denied that he was getting special treatment from the IBRC. Now we learn from Catherine Murphy, but not from RTE or from the Irish Times or from any media owned by O'Brien, such as Today FM, News Talk or the Irish Independent, we learned from Catherine Murphy that O'Brien had a half a billion euro of borrowings from Anglo and that he was given all the time he wanted to pay that back. A nice enough deal. But the real kicker was that the interest rate on that loan was around 1.25%. You heard that right, 1.25%. Bank of Ireland, by the way, is today advertising business loans at 5.74%, more than quadrupled the rate that O'Brien got. Now, if Anglo-Irish Bank, as a private bank, wanted to lose money on a crazy deal, that was their own business. But it's not their own business anymore. They went bust, and we bailed them out, and that money is owed to the taxpayer, not to a private company. 
And we learned from Catherine Murphy that the former CEO of IBRC, that's to say the nationalised company, made an informal verbal agreement with O'Brien after this credit agreement ran out, extending it, allowing him to pay back the money whenever suited him. O'Brien later wrote to the special liquidator, Kieran Wallace, and demanded that this deal be formalised in writing and continue at the taxpayer's expense. And it really was an expense. In the last few years, the interest rate for money borrowed by the Irish government went as high as 14%. It averaged at around 4%. So if O'Brien never paid back this money, he could simply pay the interest of 1.25% and loan it to the government back at a much higher rate and pocket the profit. Catherine Murphy quotes the typical business loan rate over the period at about 7%. So the value of the subsidy to O'Brien from the taxpayer was about 27 million euro per year. There's no question that Anglo was a horrendously badly run bank. That's why it went bust. But what is becoming clear is that after it was nationalised, there were no pay cuts. Alan Duke said that if there were, it would have been difficult to attract and retain quality staff. But the old business culture stayed with them and continued, probably worsened, as the bank was seen as a vehicle to siphon off money from the taxpayer. And sorry for the long rant here, but there's a third point as well. James Morrissey, Dennis O'Brien's spokesperson, was all over the media on Friday, on Matt Cooper on RTE, accusing Catherine Murphy of being dishonest. On RTE alone, he used the word falsehood at least four times when referring to Catherine Murphy. He was adamant that she had said something untrue, but he wasn't so specific as to what. In fairness to him, he says that he is injuncted by the court not to discuss the issue, so he may have felt it was difficult to explain. But what came to my mind was the non-denial denial. Look it up on Wikipedia. I'll provide a link on the webpage for this podcast. Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, dial 076-603-5060 and leave a contribution for the show. The lines are open 24-7 and you can find tips on how to record a good contribution and other ways to contact the podcast at hereshow.ie slash call. Ross Goldenbannon was a campaigner on the yes side in the recent marriage equality referendum. Just before the vote, he wrote a Facebook update, which he then recorded for the podcast. You can follow him on Twitter at GoldenShots. So long and thanks for all the no's. My Facebook update from the 21st of May, 2015. We've kept our chins up and braved it for the last seven weeks, knocking on doors in wind and rain, sometimes just two of us facing hard, cold eyes. I pulled my punches in my updates on Facebook. I didn't want people to know that in the very place where I grew up, in Sutton and Hoth, such seemingly desirable neighbourhoods, it was generously peppered with people saying no to me, on the very doorsteps where they welcomed others. Sometimes polite, sometimes rude, often sneering, people were delighting in telling me to be voting against me. People undecided, were treating the referendum like some constitutional game of X-Factor. Others just didn't care enough to vote. Others felt it was a point of grammar. My existence, just a point of grammar. Every no hurt. 
So many of the faces were faded faces of mums and dads I'd known as a child, echoes of their children still there, but now hardened into who knows what, a definition, a word, a failure to step away from empty intellectualising, a refusal to consider that their grandchild might be lesbian or gay. Every no brought me back to those same roads thirty-five years ago, when I was a gay child, knowing I was different, not fully realising why, not really understanding why the boys at the top of Glencarrig minced in front of me and called me Lionel Blair, but knowing it was best to take the long way to the shops. He's a dawdler, said my mother. I wasn't. I just always had to be on guard for who might be around the next corner, and I had to take a circuitous route to get the messages. He's careless, said my father. I wasn't. I cherished the beautiful things he gave me, but boys in school tore them from me and crushed them because I was a puff. I pretended I'd lost the polished stainless steel geometry set he'd given me. Then puberty arrived, and with it the slow, dawning horror that all those words that were being shouted at me were true. I really was one of those disgusting puffs. But how could they know when I hardly comprehended it myself? It ate away at my soul and heart until I was seventeen. It was a long time to be alone, from twelve to seventeen. Finally I came out to my best mate, who said he was only annoyed it took me so long to tell him. That's a good friend. Here I am, back in 2015, on Holy Thursday, of all days, for the start of the canvas for the historic marriage equality referendum. Yes, we have to canvas, as it turns out that some of even my closest friends are not instinctive supporters. A whole nation will now decide if I should be an equal citizen. Grandson as I am of revolutionaries, Bernard and Eileen Golden, who risked their lives for a republic which then made me a second-class citizen. Here the fight goes on, as I stand in a windswept car park with a 67-year-old grandmother and an old childhood friend who knows the complexity of what it is to be human. We started knocking on doors, and we remained polite in the face of the vilest insults. We didn't bully anyone. We just politely moved on. Then more people joined us, and as they did, my prejudices were challenged. They weren't lesbian or gay. They were straight people joining the campaign. They decided to take time away from family and kids, husbands, wives, girlfriends and boyfriends, and were standing shoulder to shoulder with me. For a while, I was the only gay in the village again, but this was different and powerful. I kept thanking people for being there, until our 67-year-old sage told me to, be, to stop being so apologetic. We're here because it's the right thing to do. On Sunday last, we did a massive canvas in Hoth Village, and we stumbled across a gang of boys from my old school, St. Fintan's CBS Sutton. That school had been the unhappiest of places for me. I nearly didn't make it through those years. I held such little value for myself that I failed at just about everything. Society, family, and school valued me so little, how could I value myself? Despite the loyalty of some good and brave schoolmates, I was badly bullied. 
but I was so ashamed of being bullied, I never even told them. During one crisis, the deputy headmaster tried to reach out to me and intimated he knew I was gay. I thought it was a trap. I was so scared to be truthful as at that time homosexuality was illegal. I had already heard of a man who'd been forced into electroshock conversion therapy. I was terrified I'd be taken away to an institution. So last Sunday, when I spotted the familiar yellow and wine of the St. Fintan's uniform as they were raising funds for the school rugby team, I offered them Yes Equality badges, as a challenge, maybe even revenge. They were only 16 or 17, fresh-faced and honest. I couldn't believe it when they took the badges and asked for more for their friends. I wish life's timelines were different, and I was a St. Fintan's pupil now. The reform of the Constitution is all too late for me. But that's okay. I'm not canvassing for me. I've missed the ordinary little relationship rehearsals all my teenage friends had. Luckily, it's not too late for a gay friend of one of those amazing St. Fintan's boys. The vista of his life will now be different. In fact, if we change the Constitution, his life's aspirations will be the same as his straight schoolmates. Don't vote yes for me. Vote yes for a happier future for the next generation. Vote yes for real. Never miss a show. Follow at Here's How Podcast on Twitter and like Here's How on Facebook for updates on each show's contents. On the line now, I have Deirdre Conroy, who is an architectural historian and also a journalist. Deirdre, you wrote a piece a while back saying how we needed to get people moving and living in the city centre. Why do we want that? Well, I've noticed, um, as I've spent a lot of time in the city centre over the last few years um, studying, so I'm, I'm very familiar with both sides of the um, inner city areas, that there is a vast amount of dereliction. Um, a lot of it, I'm sure, is just is, is a consequence of, of our seven-year recession, but um, it's unnecessarily so, as far as I can see, because we... Um, we, on the one hand, we have uh, growing homelessness and or we have people who genuinely want to buy homes um, or who want to rent. And um, the, there are, there's property available. However, what, what I've also noticed is um, streets aren't uh, safe um, because of these empty buildings and mm-hmm. because of people, you know, perhaps unkempt buildings um, or you know people may may want to buy but they're they're put off by the fact that there's um, an element of uh, insecurity about uh, our inner city and well before before do we get to, people get to buying surely there has to be something built there's huge areas of of derelict land and uh, derelict buildings in the city centre, Dublin 8 and Dublin 7, Dublin 3 have vast amounts of just just essentially wasteland and falling down buildings. Don't Doesn't something have to be built there first? Uh, well, in terms of the falling down buildings, if they are uh, 19th century buildings, which are protective structures, I do not know why landlords are not being forced to either sell to people who will restore them. I don't know why... If that is the case, they are, there are obstacles, um, 
set up where it, they can't uh, actually adapt them into multiple occupancy dwellings, uh, as in two, three, four apartments in large Georgian houses, say, for instance, around the Blessington Street area, um, that where you could make beautiful apartments out of derelict buildings. And uh, then it... Um, Yes, apparently there are uh, there are levies and fines being set for people who aren't building on empty sites because I believe Dublin City Council has identified about 170 um, sites in the last two years. So, well, as I as I understand it, that is planned, but it hasn't happened yet. But isn't I would have thought that the problem was not the crash but the boom in that people who who owned these sites saw them appreciating at maybe twenty five or thirty percent in capital value per year. The rental uh, value of those would only have been a small fraction of that. Why did they need to even bother to do all the work to build on them and rent them out when they could when most of the profit came from the capital appreciation? Um, that may be so, but at this stage, it's, it's, uh, I imagine those people don't own them anymore and it's very much a NAMA landlord, uh, problem. And the, they too are holding on to sites and buildings, uh, waiting for them to appreciate. And when it comes to the buildings, that's very detrimental because they're just going to continue to, um, uh, degrade with uh, roofs falling in, with um, squatting uh, uh, and what have you. So there's there's a log jam somewhere along this along the line because it's a we're, it's a very small city and compared and uh, I came to this conclusion and it's not a, it's not a, um, a difficult conclusion to come to about the lack of guardie presence and about the lack of um, yeah, you mentioned as a solution to to increase guarded serv- guarded patrols in places like this. Yeah, I came to that conclusion merely by um, comparing Dublin city centre with other cities that people want to live in. People will pay um, a premium to live in, um, or uh, or really love to live in, like the centre of Paris or or um, New York or Rome, um, and nobody wants to live in the centre of Dublin. So so you're saying essentially that the lack of policing means that there's a lack of demand for people living there? Yeah, it, there's a variety of factors, but um, it does come down to policing because you can't attract people into the centre you, um, if they don't feel it's a safe place to walk with their kids or to walk home from work in the dark. Um, and I'm not saying it's all over the city centre, but I, I, I'm aware of it. We're all aware of it. We all know people who live in city centres who have the cars um, wrecked. So it is, it's definitely an issue. But aside from that, there's a there's multifactorial um, problem of people holding on to property, it's, and which has been going on since the 60s or 70s, from what I can see. Um, my um, There are buildings along Baggett Street and Mount Street that I've never seen used. Um, and there's that, and there's the new... Landlord problem of NAMA and the banks re, um, repossessing properties that other people were holding on to. On the security part, I'm not sure that you're correct because if you um, follow, for example, Rudy Giuliani's idea of the broken windows theory, that 
crime follows dereliction and not the other way around. In other words, when a place looks like there's a lot of crime happening there, that's where criminals feel comfortable. Um, isn't it the case that if you had people moving back in and you had l- lots of, uh, let's say, ordinary decent people on the streets, that would provide a uh, deterrent to crime? Oh, uh, absolutely. That is, that's the corollary of what I'm saying about the um, policing first with, along with the new incentives that have been announced, the living city incentive and for Waterford Galway, Limerick, Dublin, Cork and Kilkenny. Um, it's a fantastic incentive for people to buy properties pre-1914. Um, but why would they do that when they might not feel safe on those particular streets? So the two have to work in tandem. There has to be a visibility of policing and that you will feel safe and that you will go back because you're quite right about the broken window syndrome. Um, if I, I noticed on um, Portland, I think it's called Portland Road, um, Alborough House, this magnificent building, it's, 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 the windows are boarded up, there's hoarding all around it, and um, it's almost like a declaration that it's okay to leave things mm-hmm. in der- dereliction. And what that's not in state ownership anymore, um, it it makes this declaration to everything around us. And, that, and if, if if we saw more restoration, it does, uh, um, as you say, give people a sense of pride about their surroundings. Deirdre Conroy, architectural historian and journalist, also available at deirdreconroy.com. Thank you very much. Thank you. If you like the Here's How podcast, please rate and review the show on iTunes and other podcast providers. Share it on Facebook and Twitter. Tell your friends. But most of all, make your views heard. Call us on 076 603 5060. Recently, Minister Aon O'Riordan suggested opening drug-injecting clinics where heroin addicts would be permitted to inject themselves with heroin without fear of arrest in Dublin City, rather than have those addicts injecting on the street. I'm joined now by Gronya Kenny, who is the Honorary President of URAD. Gronya, what is URAD? Uh, European Action on Drug Policy. We're a voluntary NGO, non-governmental organisation, combined of uh, recovering addicts, treatment people, I'm a trained counsellor, parents, um, general concerned citizens across Europe and wider who are concerned at um, the spread of drug use, the the moves towards legalisation and we, we would like to prevent the use of drugs in the first place and support families uh, all families, the parents, the siblings, and the addicts themselves. That's why we have addicts, reformed addicts, who are members of your ad and on the board. I, I understand. Um, what's your opinion of Eleanor uh, Reardon's suggestion? Well, face of it, of course, it sounds the logical thing to do. Nobody wants to see a heroin addict injecting on the street. Uh, you know, you don't want to see them sleeping on the street. So it does seem like a very logical thing to do. But it's not a new suggestion. And I am concerned at how fast Eidhan O'Riordan has come out the gate, as, as we should say, 
Mm. He's also talking about um, liberalizing drugs, and he even mentioned the word he'd like legalizing when he was on television about two weeks ago. And our concern would be this. Firstly, it's, it's, yes, there are some countries that have injecting rooms or shooting galleries. Now, I would have been in those places because as, as um, my work with URAD, you know, I would, tra- I would have traveled a lot. And I was in them in Switzerland, I was in them in the Netherlands and that. Now, they are not treatment places. I want to be quite clear on this and anybody who says... Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a distinction. This is not somewhere where people go for drug, for drug treatment. This is somewhere where people can perhaps manage an addiction rather than attempt to kick it. Terrible thing that we teach people to manage an addiction instead of trying to help them to beat the addiction, to give them treatment. Give, give me specifics as to give me specifics as to why you think it's it's not a good thing. Well, it, firstly, it, the first place we're coming from, and I would expect any minister or junior minister or minister of state, as they're called now, to be aware of international laws when they take up office. I would expect their advisors in the department to to tell the Minister of State, hang on a minute, there are UN conventions, United Nations conventions on narcotic drugs, psychotropic substances and doping agents. About almost 200 countries have signed those conventions. The Irish government have signed them. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, those conventions state, among the many things that they state in, in relation to drug trafficking and, and that kind of thing, uh, it is very, very clear, and you can check it yourself if you wish, or anybody can check it on the Interna- INCB website, International Narcotic Control Board website. Um, injecting rooms are actually banned by law within the UN conventions because the, the combined governments and the experts at the United Nations agree that they will uh, that they encourage drug trafficking so so what what you're saying is that with international treaties it wouldn't be legally possible for the irish government to permit injecting rooms breaking would be a very serious thing to do and it's not in the hands of a junior minister and this is what it disappoints me i would i had hoped that he would come out with something different and new instead of going for the what is the popular call uh, it would be breaching the conventions and it's not in his gift it is up to the combined government around the table to agree to it well he, he made he made the suggestion but maybe put aside for a moment wh- the, the legality of it um I live in Dublin city centre. You literally can trip over people uh, in some areas of the city who are uh, injecting drugs. Wouldn't it be safer to have a safe place for people to do that? Perhaps also have the have the have the drugs tre- tested for purity. You living in the city, it would be nicer for me when I'm in the city and other people not to have to be tripping over them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but it, the reality is whether it is or not the international laws. And this is where we're coming from. It is the international laws. Now, if the Irish government say, we're not, we're going, we're going to break these laws, if Enda Kenny and Joan Burton, as leaders of the two parties, if the combined government agree that, okay, we're going to do away with these conventions, then to do away with them and they, they, they bring in the, the injecting rooms. Okay, well, 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 let's, let's accept that point. I don't have a lawyer on the line. But let, let's say, uh, the, um, let's say you're king of the world. And somebody brings a proposal to you and, to, and says, uh, and you have the power to implement it, and they suggest having an injecting room instead of uh, having people injecting on the streets. Is that a good idea? On a personal level, I, would, I wouldn't object to it. But 
it's not the answer to the drug problem and there will be more and more people still coming on the streets. Reality is and, and th- that these, the injection rooms, for instance, in the Netherlands, uh, there's a very small uptake on them. Because of the life of an addict, they, they're not queuing up to use the rooms. They, they, when they get to buy their drug, wherever they buy it, they're not going to travel across Dublin into a place where they can inject it because of the nature of their addiction they need to get it into their veins quick <laughs> so it, while it looks humane and I, I'm speaking from years of experience of, of genuinely of looking at this in other countries and I feel and I've sat in the injection rooms for instance in the Netherlands <laughs> poor women came off the streets at night and went in and sat up with a cup of coffee injected and then just left it, it just is there's no, you know, there's, there's no, there is, it, it, it just doesn't do anything to the overall drug problem. I understand. It may on the, on the surface, you know, clean up the streets a little, but it's, it's not the answer. He's going to have to do an awful lot more than open injection rooms. Why doesn't he have the health, the HSC in, uh, methadone clinics? Uh, looked at by an independent auditor to see why is it? And I'm speaking from knowledge here, why is it that many people are attending these clinics and are not being passed on for treatment where they're being told in certain clinics you will be on methadone for the rest of your life? Gronje, can I put a, put a, I understand, can I put a, a suggestion to you? Um, first of all, I think uh, we both know and it's not uh, at all disputed that the life of a heroin addict is a miserable and pathetic life. Um, but the fact is that we do have quite a few thousand heroin addicts in this country and a and a heroin addict is essentially a walking cash machine for a drug dealer and it is uh, very much within the interest of that drug dealer to keep that heroin addict injecting if that if that link between the amount of money they produce and the addiction could be broken I think that will be one thing that will be important. Wouldn't it therefore be a good idea to say, okay, people who want to get off heroin, we will give them as much help as possible, but there will be, a, a because of the chaotic lives of these people, there'll be a lot of people who won't be doing that. And if people are not taking up treatment, why not say to them, come to the injecting room and we will give you free heroin and that will put the drug dealers out of business. And you'll also, in the end of the day, kill, kill the unfortunate client. Well, well, you would far less like, no, just, Gronje, allow me to answer that, Gronje. You, you, it, it would be possible to uh, test for purity uh, the heroin and give them, clearly it's not an ideal situation, but it would be an awful lot safer than them buying heroin of unknown purity on the street. Yeah, but pure heroin would kill them because they're, they're used to very small amounts of heroin. And sure, well, and that, that can be calibrated and that can be medically tested. But it hasn't, it, it doesn't work. The, the country with the best outcome on drugs, actually, is Sweden. And they don't have injection rooms. You see, you have to say, and you're so right, the number of addicts we have in, in the country is an absolute indictment on this government and the government before it, Fianna Fáil and Labour and the whole lot of them, that they said when they introduced the the uh, methadone and needle exchange some years ago, they gave exactly the same argument. We will have outreach workers on the streets. We will we will get them in for treatment. You know, this will this will help to cut down on the addicts. Now it did cut down on HIV, 
but hepatitis C went up and so did the number of addicts. But Gronia, Gronia the, 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 in, while those uh, um, methods had some positive and negative aspects, it, they, none of them took away the fact that drug dealers have an enormous financial interest in keeping drug addicts and making and getting new people uh, hooked on heroin if that if that incentive was taken away there would be no incentive to import drugs and uh, offer them to new new addicts don't you think after 35 years in this area i know that mm-hmm. and my colleagues know it but it doesn't work internationally it doesn't work the, the thing it comes back to the beginning it is not in the gift of a minister a junior minister or a, a full minister to go around talking about i, I want to, i'm going to do this and that in relation to legalizing and injection rooms it's a government decision and also they go they meet in um, vienna every march and these things are discussed now O'Riordan is a very intelligent, bright man. He will be in March next year. This is where these discussions will take place. And I would urge him to really hold his breath to blow on his parish and wait until he goes to, um, to Vienna next March if he is still, if we still have this government and talk to people there and listen and learn. And, you know, we, nobody wants to see addicts left in that situation but the addicts do can and do recover mm-hmm. re- we have we have excellent treatment facilities if they can get into them but oh, what's happening is they're being held up in the methadone clinics about this new minister he's a doctor i haven't heard him say yet and i i hope he will um bring out some new initiative on prevention projects in the school prevention education because if we don't prevent drug use we'll be making this having the same discussion gronia kenny the honorary president of urad thank you very much for joining me make your view heard dial 076 603 5060 and leave a contribution for the show you can find tips on how to record a good contribution and other ways to contact the podcast at here's how.ie slash call That's almost the end of episode 7 of Here's How, Ireland's political, social and current affairs podcast, published on the 30th of May 2015. References for everything that I mention in the show are listed on the page of this episode on the hereshow.ie website. If you like the podcast, please go on iTunes and write a nice review. Also, please like the show on Facebook. Please follow at Here's How Podcast on Twitter And, of course, subscribe to the show. You can use iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, or any other podcast app or software. You can do all of that right from www.hereshow.ie. Or you can just go out and meet people and tell them how great the podcast is. The next show will be uploaded shortly. The Here's How podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening. (music) 